everybody again it's Thomas Buher and we are now on chapter 3 of Bavink's The Christian Family took a few days or a day or two off I guess maybe just one day I can't remember now but anyway uh, we're picking it back up here this is a very long chapter however uh, there's some good stuff in it but there's also a lot having to do with evolution kind of what the thought was a hundred years ago in evolutionary circles about the origins of the family. And I'll, I'll just try to give you a quick blow through of that because I imagine, I mean, Bob Inc. is even saying that that consensus is falling away even among evolutionary, you know, evolutionists and so on. So it's probably just outdated information. But the gist of it is that, um, uh, well, let's start in the order that Bobbin goes. That'll be easier. He starts with the ravaging of the family through sin. And he says, towards the end of the first paragraph in his chapter, For from the beginning it was the will of God that as soon as more families arose, the man would leave his father and mother and would choose a wife as his helpmeet, not from within, but from outside the parental family, from another family. The wonderful expansion of the human race, the infinite variety among people, and the inexhaustible richness of relationships between households and families, generations and peoples are all due to the divine will. Every marriage blends various psychological gifts and distinct physical strengths, becoming thereby a new source of a particular fullness of life. And he sort of touches before that how... Adam and Eve, their first children, had to marry each other. It wasn't incest at that time because they could not conceive of basically a, a family outside of their own family. And it was only over time that God really put into the hearts and minds of people that, hey, there is a difference between, you know, my, my brothers and sisters, my first cousins, that sort of tight-knit family tribe, and you know, the the tribe across the way, so to speak, or the the, the town uh, down the street, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so over time, this sense of uh, propriety, if you will, developed. And, and Bavik is saying the intent was there from the beginning, of course, with God, that you leave and cleave. You don't stay in the same home by marrying your sister. Um, but of course, that consciousness and that development took place uh, in real history, starting with one man and one woman, and so it took a bit of time, not long, but a little bit of time before uh, you could marry somebody besides your own siblings or first cousins or whatever. And, you know, I mean, that's, I have nothing to say against that. That's all reasonable stuff to say. So, um, but the, the part that I just read uh, is also helpful that when you mix and blend different families, you have. Uh, well, different perspectives. Now, they should all be Christian. You know, there should not be um, mixed beliefs in marriages, right? In the sense of, well, I'm a Christian, this person's a Hindu, or I'm a Christian and this person's a, you know, a Jehovah's Witness or whatever the case may be. Um, but among the saints, when two families of believers come together, it's, well, it's another picture of, of, harmony within diversity, right? Unity within diversity, that whole kind of thing, going back to Bob Inc.'s thing with the Trinity, right? Uh, there's a blending together again of two, man and woman, becoming one flesh, 
but becoming their own branch, if you will, um, from their, their previous families. And so that should enrich this marriage bond as if the parents have faithfully raised their children, they have certain experiences that are then further rounded out by marrying someone outside of their family. And so the two families, at some level, ideally, apart from sin, if everybody's Christians especially, which is not always or perhaps these days even rarely the case, um, can, can kind of somewhat live in harmony with each other. Now, we live in a sin-torn, sin-cursed world, and that, that is rare, especially in our society and culture today with, you know, mass transportation, planes, trains, and automobiles. We fly and move across the country uh, all the time. And now, is that wrong? Inherently, no. But... You have to weigh things and use wisdom. What are you losing when you leave your family so completely that you're far, far away, out of state, and a day-to-day bond and relationship is severed? I mean, I've kind of experienced that recently. I moved from North Carolina, where I grew up, to Florida to take a job, which is closer to my wife's family, which is a huge benefit because just today my wife visited her mom it's about a two-hour trip to get to her mom's house, but that's a lot better than the nine-hour trip that it was or whatever when we were in North Carolina. And she has a sister that's about an hour and a half away that's even closer. So that was helpful. But we were also thinking before that about if it worked out to take a um, pastorate uh, in South Dakota. And to my knowledge, I don't have any family out there anywhere nearby. Um, I have a friend who has his mom in Minnesota about four hours away, but you know, there was no real connection whatsoever to South Dakota. So what, you know, what do you do? Well, you, you weigh things, you know, this is an opportunity to serve in a church is the way that we looked at it. And if God calls us there, then he's, he wants us there and we'll go there and we'll be faithful. And the benefit of airplanes and such is that family can come visit and we can come and see them at times. Uh, but we're, we're, you know, we're well past the, the days of, you know, you grow up in one town and you nary go farther than, you know, 20, 30 miles from it. Um, good, bad, indifferent, there's a lot of ramifications to that, but we have to think them through. Just because the Bible doesn't say you must be this close or you don't have to be this close to your family doesn't mean whatever you do is the best thing to do in any given situation. Uh, because family bonds are important. Now, in some situations, you may be getting away from parents who have been very hostile and mistreating you or unbelievers altogether, and that separation could be a good thing as well. Um, but anyway, the, the need to leave and cleave is there, uh, fundamentally. E- even in some situations, you know, in, in various cultures, and even perhaps in Bible times, in some situations where, you know, you would add on to the house of of your parents and have your own separate living quarters, but it's literally built on the same piece of land. I mean, that can work out as well, uh, but it may not. So, you know, there's lots of variety of of leaving and cleaving that's biblically faithful. Um, Certainly marrying your sister is not biblically faithful. Marrying outside of the Christian faith is not faithful. It's not right. It's not going to be... um, a blessed marriage, um, at least in the outset. Now you can repent and 
and change, um, but start out on the right foot and you won't have to worry about those things. So yeah, Bobbin goes on to talk about how sin immediately enters in and there's this destructive effect on the home. Um, husband Adam blames God for Eve, his wife, in Genesis when they're caught with the forbidden fruit. Cain kills Abel, so we got fratricide. Uh, Lamech is involved with polygamy. Uh, this boasting of avenging with the sword invented by Tubal-Cain, this weapon of, of, of killing. Um, revenge and thirst for revenge were the inspiration behind the first song that we hear from the lips of fallen man, Bobbink says. And that, that's quite a, I never really thought of it that way, but it's, it's true, right? It's the first uh, piece of musical poetry, and it's about killing and murder and so on. Um, so godlessness and immorality go hand in hand. They ate, drank, drink, buried, or given in marriage till the days of Noah. God destroys the people for their um, unthinkable wickedness, their uh, heightened, you know, every thought of man was only evil continually, entire worldwide God giving people over to the hardness of their hearts, save Noah and his house. And uh, I guess that was a good thing perhaps there that uh, his sons were living in close proximity so they could, uh, you know, get on the ark and so on. Um, <laughs> But anyway, um, I could say more because I'm, I'm actually been preaching through Second Peter when I get the opportunities in just in Second Peter three and really throughout Second Peter it talks about our own sinfulness today and false teachers and scoffers who make light of God's word and holiness and righteousness and and think because God has tarried and, and Christ has tarried and, and coming back that there's going to be no judgment and so on and so forth and so people revel in their sins and soften on the doctrines of the word of God because it doesn't seem to have any uh, negative effect but only seems to have a, a positive you know worldly benefit but with the Lord thousand days uh, uh, you know there's a whole thousand days like oh, I'm, I'm mixing it up I haven't got there yet in my preaching but the whole you know one day is, is a thousand years to the Lord that kind of thing um, it, it, God is patient and he's filling up his cup of wrath right and uh, as it was in the days of Noah, so it is in these days. And, and there's this calm before the storm or this given over to wickedness before the storm. And you can even relate that to our nation today and just seeing the godless, godlessness and sexuality and the family and the disruption of it. Um, you know, more and more practicing homosexuality, gay, so-called gay marriage, um, you know, bestiality people just not getting married but cohabiting and having children together or abortion right probably above all and longest lasting with a deep bloody trail is abortion i mean talk i mean it's not like abortion is brand new of course but with the medical advancement you know instead of filling the earth and subduing it being fruitful and multiplying in our dominion making we're, we're killing we're literally killing human life murdering it to limit our fruitfulness and productivity. And with the best that money can buy, the best medicine that you can do, and with the full protection, well, much protection from the government, uh, it's ghastly, it's wicked, and God is judging us for that or filling up that cup to pour out on us. And it doesn't just have to be at the second coming of Christ. Throughout history, even since Christ has ascended back into heaven, 
you can look throughout history as you could throughout every other stage of history and see here's God's hand in judgment on his people, on the world. Now we're scattered throughout the nations, God's people, but still that judgment comes and, you know, we don't have to just say Christ's second coming is near, but recognize that each judgment and cycle here is a, a, a foretaste or a, a portrayal of that final climactic judgment that will come when Christ returns. But it's, it's cyclical, but it's still advancing and moving forward God's story and history of redemption um, as we live between the already and the, the not yet, the, between the two comings, the first and second coming of Christ. Now, all that, that I've just said isn't completely unrelated to what Bobbing is talking about, just to assure you here, because he's going to talk about the breakdown of the family, even though I'm not quoting as much. Um, so, yeah, we, we talked about how different families coming together as husband and wife from two different families enriches it ideally when we're living faithfully and marrying in the Lord. And we do have to take that into account. You know, single men, single women, you know, take into account the whole package here. Um, when you marry a particular person, it's a package deal at some level that the family is is involved at the very least with it. Um, now, no, I'm not saying just because the person you're interested in has a terrible home life that you shouldn't marry them. But I'm also want to avoid the error, which I think is the error, of, of turning it into like a rescue mission where you should especially look for the people who have messed up home lives. Um, because that pictures Christ and the church so beautifully. Well, it, it may or may not be a good fit. Remember, you're not Christ. <laughs> you may not be able to fix this by marrying this person. This person may not be in a position to be married. They may very well be despite their circumstances. And then, you know, man, are you up to it to lead your family, your wife, out of that terrible situation? Wife, are you willing to submit to a, a new man, a godly man who has a terrible parents for himself even if he himself is godly i mean it's not selfish to weigh these things it's wisdom um and, and you know marriage is a sacrifice but it's not merely a sacrifice it's a joy it's a delight it's a gift and um just more and more i i want to express that i think that biblical healthy balance that marriage is a blessing and it's not merely a call um uh, to sacrifice it certainly is and the blessing comes in the sacrifice as well and it's certainly not a, a place to be selfish you won't enjoy your marriage and you won't be a good spouse if you're being selfish um, but I do think it's right to talk about um, needs each other satisfying one another's needs in marriage and it's not wrong to say yeah I really do have have these needs now and I was talking with one of my uh, previous pastors in, in North Carolina a bit about this, you know, what is a need? <laughs> uh, I don't mean that uh, we need anything beyond Jesus Christ and him crucified for the salvation of our souls. But I do mean to say something that is kind of pictured in what Bob Inc. was talking about earlier, that it was not good for man to be alone in the garden when God was right there with him. Um, that God says it is not good for you to be alone. There is a need here that is not being met. And again, it, it, I don't mean to be crass by this at all or, or anything, but you can't have your sexual needs and there are sexual needs met in Jesus in the sense that uh, through prayer you either get some weird sexual satisfaction, which nobody in the right mind would advocate for, or that it will just completely 
uh, disappear. And, and I, I don't think my, my pastor friend is, is arguing that either, just to be clear. Um, and, and I don't think most people outside of maybe Roman Catholics who forbid marriage uh, among the priesthood and, you know, a monk or something would, would take it that to that level. But I do think there's a balance that has to be kept in this. You know, you don't want to just say, I need woman man, you know, as a man. And a woman is, oh, I, I can't um, function without a man so that you just while you're single and trying to find a spouse but you can't you're just completely robbed of actually serving God you're robbing God of serving him in your seasons of season of singleness um, you have to be functional just like if um, I break my leg I still have to do certain things in life even though there is a real need in a sense right for my leg to heal or somebody who's lost physical you know limbs body parts um, is it a need to have that? Yeah, I mean, we need to be able to walk, but sort of a, a miracle virtually unheard of since Bible times, someone's not going to grow back a leg. And so, you know, if they can't afford a prosthetic or, or some other means, they have to go through life with uh, something that is needful to regular human functioning that they just will not have. Um, and, and, and so, again, well, they, nothing, none of this has anything to do with salvation. None of this has anything to do with still being able to serve the Lord with gladness. You can. God will, Christ bears our burdens with us, but we are to take up our cross and follow him. And certain crosses in our lives, I believe, is right to say that they really are needs in our lives. And I think marriage is, an, is especially a need. And I say that because the original call for man to obey God was to be fruitful and multiply. You can't do that without husband and wife, without Adam and Eve. You can't, you literally cannot fulfill the dominion mandate without a spouse, without marriage, without sex. And so there's a, a, a need even just to be obedient to God in that commission. Um, but with that, there's also physical desires and needs like we have for food and water for most people again accepting in the post-fall world that there is uh, those who are called to be single and have the gift of celibacy those who have the gift of celibacy are the ones who should be single and I, I, I don't at all think that would have been the case per, apart from the fall there's nowhere in scripture that would indicate that um, I'm not going so far as to say that being single is a curse, but it is a need that is not being fulfilled if you're called to marriage and have those desires. Okay, I've, I've, I think I've belabored that. And I could, you know, we could say more maybe throughout this and as Bobbing touches on this more directly again, we can. And, and in this chapter, he will touch on these things at least indirectly as well. But um, I, I just think it's really important um, that, that we think about these things and think through these things. Okay. Um, so then, like I said, Bobbing has this long section on evolution uh, and what evolution says, how we got the monogamous one man, one woman, nuclear family, whatever you want to call it. Uh, basically, I'm just going to try to blow through this, highlight it. Uh, evolutionists at, at that time, 100 years ago, would say there existed among people in the realm of sexual life nothing other than promiscuity and concubinage. That was just like a sexual free-for-all 
Although Bob Inc. will say that already in his day, people were, were abandoning that viewpoint and that Darwin himself didn't believe that, but believed that from the earliest, you know, humanoids, half human, half animal type beings, that there was some sort of monogamous uh, male-female monogamy relationships. So even, even Darwin himself believed that, apparently. Um, so... Evolutionists are always changing. They're always evolving in their own theories, right? Um, and I don't know if there's a whole lot more to say about that, except that it does, evolutionary do, evolutionists do recognize some sort of uh, movements from matriarchy initially to patriarchy. Uh, the father, you know, wasn't really around, but because the child and the mother had that natural connection, that just really can't be broken can be broken more and more today of our advances sadly um filling the reference of doing it is what we're called to but it's, i think it's always a double-edged sword in this fallen world because it can be used for the greater advancement or pain and hindrance anyway um back in you know earlier times a baby had to be fed and a, a mother had to nurse the baby basically and you know a hunter-gathering society there really wasn't very many, if any, Xena warrior princess type women. The men were made by God, physically stronger, and nature itself bears this out, and so they had to go out and hunt and kill the animals. And Bob Inc. says that the men were primarily, you know, slaughtering the animals, uh, pertaining to the meat, and the woman took care of the home and the plant life, uh, working in the gardens. And that's how it has, had been and has been for a long time in many ways. You know, there's deviations and variations, exceptions to that rule. And, and Bob Inc. goes on to talk about how in uh, societies where there is real advancement and luxury, where you don't have to just scrape out a living by taking your bow and arrow and, you know, shooting deer uh, or whatever, praying for the next rain because it's the only way you're going to get water and, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Uh when you go beyond that, men can often fall into just laziness and women do all the work or, you know, some other situation where the women rise up and, and you know, they can become busybodies, they, they have greater ease and so on and so forth. And, and, and certainly almost all of us in the United States are living a luxurious life compared to all of human history. I, I don't think I even have to defend that statement if we're if we're honest with ourselves. If you're living in a in a roach infested apartment, but have walls and air conditioning, uh, you're doing okay. <laughs> um, even many of our homeless people, there's so many programs and generous churches and governmental assistance and all these different things that they're better off than than a lot of people in third world countries i think so you know we're doing well for ourselves that also gives rise to situations where uh, male and female differences are going to be blunted almost necessarily right because survival is less urgent i mean think about that how often do you wake up and think i've got to do this for us to survive this day 
uh, ordinarily, I would say we, we don't think that way. Like survival as in a literal life or death sort of thing. You know, I, I wake up with a lot of worries, sinful worries, because I'm too much of a worry wart. But rarely is my worry, where is my, if ever, you know, where is my meal going to come from today? I just wake up and, you know, my good wife has my food, my eggs or oatmeal or whatever ready for me. And um, I know I've got some money in the bank. And even though the food supply chain is a little bit scary with things going on in coronavirus right now, and I realize we are a very fragile society, and usually I think uh, luxurious societies become that way, is what is what we're seeing. And that's also given me some pause to say, hey, I need to own more land. I need to have some basic garden and maybe some chickens or something eventually because I want to be my own safety net, right? Like take responsibility as a man. Um, the most fundamental burden for having a safety net, by which I mean, you know, protecting your family, falls on the head of the house, not the government and not even the church. Now, I think the church certainly should help as, as when and as it can, but not for irresponsible husbands and fathers, just as certain widows were not allowed to be brought in by the church. Uh, and then other family members should be helping if they can, even before the church steps in. And I even think there can be, in a limited way, uh, for the government as an agent for good to assist. Now, I think it can get and has gotten out of control in our nation, and, and I'm still thinking through that more. But certainly in this fallen world with an imperfect governmental system, uh, I do think it's foolish if you are in a situation where you, you need some assistance and you're striving your best to move up into a, you know, a position where you can be absolutely fully self-supporting, um, that if there's some governmental assistance that's available, that's reasonable, um, I'm not saying it's altogether forbidden. In my understanding, others would probably sharply disagree with that, and I'm, I'm not going to push back too hard on that. Each person has to decide in their conscience, biblically, what is, is true on that. Um, but putting all of that aside... Um, gender differences, what it is to be masculine and feminine. Your masculinity, your femininity can be kind of mixed together and blunted when uh, I don't have to go out um, and just be naturally physically super strong as a man because I'm outside all day chopping trees down and, you know, carrying my knives and my hatchets and my guns and, uh, you know, again, bringing the meat home. I bring home the bacon now, but it's a, I sit on my butt all day long on a computer for my job. <laughs> so have we evolved or devolved? Well, that might be devolving <laughs> if you look at my flabby body. Uh, now, in all seriousness, men are called to take care of their health just as women are called to take care of their health and their bodies. We need physical exercise, but you know, I was in shape a lot, relatively speaking, in high school and, and prior to that because I played sports and I enjoyed it and I did a little bit of weight training, but those are all, you know, recreational entertainment type things. It wasn't like I had to go out and provide and it demanded my physical body to do it. Now, does that mean that I'm sinning or that we live in a sinful society just because of that fact exists? Well, the answer is no, we're not. <laughs> and look, if, if there's any patriarchal types and I think there might be some, who, you know, basically say even if 
this society wussifies man. Um, we still, as men, have to be lumberjacks type people and, and um, blue collar, uh, heavy lifting and all this stuff. And if you don't do it, you're just not a man and, and you're not being honoring to God. Uh, I, I think that's kind of a ridiculous application of, of biblical masculinity. And I do think that some go to that extent. Um, now, if you do this because you like it and you enjoy it and it's an assistance unto that end, I think that is wonderful and that is great. And I do think the other end of the spectrum is completely ridiculous. If they think, well, I can be a man who knows nothing of physical exertion and expressing any kind of strength and, you know, has no relationship to uh, the dirt and the soil and the earth, <laughs> uh, you know, because we, we are men and there's still certain things that have to be done and we should delight in that. It should be natural to us as men to enjoy using our strength. And there is something unbecoming of a man who doesn't want to be strong. And I'm talking about physical strength here, not just physical strength, but in this case, I'm talking about physically strong. Um, and, you know, that's convicting to me. I don't consider myself an overly terribly weak man, but I do have a desk job. And so there is a greater burden on me because my job itself doesn't create physical strength and exertion and stamina and exercise. It behooves me to, to, to take that on for myself. You say, well, why? Well, because it is bound up to being a man and being physically strong. It, there, there is a connection there. It doesn't mean I have to be, a, you know, go fishing or hunting or play this sport or that sport. But in some way, I need to maintain my body. And for men, that pertains, especially when we talked about what's most central to a man, most central to a woman a couple episodes ago. Physical strength is much more central to a man than it is a woman. And now get this, physical beauty is more central to a woman than it is to a man. Now, do men, do men need to be ugly? No. Do women need to be weak? Um, no. <laughs> it's not wrong for a woman to want to be physically strong and in shape as well. Um, but we understand this naturally even still. I mean, we do. Uh, men still strive to be more strong generally than, you know, wear very effeminate, beautiful clothing and be known for their clothing and, and you know, bodily piercings and, and things like that. And I do think it's it's wrong for a man to, 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 to major on physical clothing and earrings and, and, and tattoos and things like that, where women should be magnifying their beauty in their dress and their carriage and their comportment and all of that. And um, because God has made women to be the fairer sex uh, in, in beauty and in, in physical strength, they're the weaker sex. And uh, these are good things that we have to maintain in a, a culture where it's much easier to not maintain them and think that it doesn't have side effects. But it certainly, it most certainly does have side effects. It, it, it's, it absolutely does. Transgenderism, homosexuality, um, you know, women being put in situations in harm's way, in danger, they shouldn't be because men aren't stepping up, men not taking leadership, women trying to subvert their authority 
And because, as Bhavint will talk about, their even you know, mental makeup is different than man. It's not suited for that. You know, our bodies and our minds as men are suited together for our work and our calling, as women's bodies and minds are suited together for their particular calling. That's not belittling one or the other. It's just saying God has made legitimate differences here. And in a society and culture that is as wealthy and, and um, physically and financially blessed as we are, uh, it can create decadence. Uh, and, I, and I doubt many of us are immune to that. But a sort of hyper machismo uh, counterbalance to that is also impractical. I mean, there's people in my family who love hunting and fishing. And that's great. I've gone fishing a few times in my life. I've never really hunted. And, you know, if I had more time and opportunity, uh, I would be interested in, in, in hunting. I would. I would absolutely be interested in that. Uh, probably more than fishing, actually. It's a little bit more exciting to me, thinking about you're going to kill something, and, and it's just, you know, you could bring home some meat. I, you know, it, I have no issue with that. I always gravitated towards sports. Um, you know, but we have to be, um, as men, manly, and as women, womanly. And that's the extended point I'm trying to make here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, just this evolutionary stuff of bobbing. Um, as men became more over time in this process of evolution around the child, and it wasn't just the child and the mother, which this evolutionary model argued created a matriarchy initially because she took care of the children and that just sort of made the men subservient or something like that. Um in time, the men came in, and they're just physically stronger, and so the women are oppressed, the children are maybe oppressed, and there's this domineering patriarchy that emerges from this matriarchy. Um, but that didn't last forever, uh, because there's a lot of polygamy and polyandry, is where you know women had multiple husbands and polygamy, men had multiple wives. Um, that was only for the rich that could you know, support that kind of lifestyle. So that didn't last. So it, it, it whittled its way down to monogamy. Um, and then that was theoretically elevated in many countries as law or what's best. But evolutionists are saying, you know, so it's natural selection, survival of the fittest, just monogamy was the way that the water was falling from the mountain. It's just what was inevitable. And uh, there's really no moral better thing about monogamy one man one woman is just what occurred <laughs> um but says even their own theory is is bogus um people become more cautious on their application of this evolutionary theory um and these things don't really happen in stages bobbing says but we see these all kind of being mushed together and that's true it, it, from one family to another the man or the woman might be wearing the pants ruling the roost right uh, there might be a healthy marriage, there might be an unhealthy marriage. There might be, um, you know, a man with multiple women, maybe even sometimes a woman with multiple men, and they're not married at all. There's homosexuality, and, and, and so it gets jumbled together. It's not really a linear progression in, in historical stages. Um, and Bob, I think, has a good word here that, um, you know, all the Ten Commandments, if you break them, if you break any one of them, is an immoral act, but it's usually the seventh commandment that we associate the word immorality with. 
and he's saying, you know, this kind of um, elevating, you know, do not commit adultery, sexual sins, um, to a greater severity than perhaps they ought to be. Or at least we can't denigrate, you know, the first table of the law, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't make of yourself any graven image. Do not take your, you know, the Lord thy God's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Our duties to God are um, first and foremost. And worshiping God rightly and honoring him correctly and glorifying him in that direct worshipful sort of way um, is, is the greatest robbery right adultery is, is spiritual adultery is idolatry you know the, the 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 greater sin is the idolatry spiritual adultery is, is used as a picture of that um both are terrible but certainly uh whoring against god is even worse than whoring against your wife now the two aren't utterly disconnected either um marriage is a picture of christ and the church and we can't just absorb the bond between husband and wife into the picture either right i mean man and woman flesh and blood were there in the garden yeah i already intended to picture christ and the church and 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 all of that I, and you can get into a lot of deep theological discussions on that but um creation itself is good and husband and wife is good and the family is good because god made it at the beginning and said it was all good and it wasn't good before there was woman and so we got to have a real, you know, embodied religion. And that's why, one of the reasons why I'm, I've come to really emphasize this, 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 um, I've come to see this more and more, I believe, from Scripture, that um, marriage is good for its own sake. And now, don't misunderstand me. It cannot be divorced righteously from what it pictures, which is Christ and the church. And marriage cannot be divorced from worshiping God. But none of that means that marriage isn't good in and of itself. It's better for unbelieving pagans to marry and be honorable. It's, it's just the way God has made things and designed things in creation and nature. It's better for them to do that, even if they're not honoring God in it, than, than it is for them uh, to not marry at all, or for homosexuality to occur, or bestiality. You know, marriage of itself between a man and a woman is a good and righteous gift from God. And so we should look to the eternal in it, but we should also see um that it's not just a shadow but a real thing and it was always that way from the beginning all right that, i hope that's clear in what i'm trying to say um bobbing says spiritual sins like unbelief denying god pride avarice greed ambition hatred of god and neighbor etc are no less deserving of punishment in the eyes of the lord than the sins of the flesh it is indeed proof of the darkening of our understanding and the wicked thoughts of our heart when we view the latter as far worse than the former and allow ourselves to be guided in our judgment about people and situations by this unspiritual perspective. Um, and, and, and that's important. Uh, you know, if you commit a sexual sin, in some ways, nothing can further, um, you know, get you in trouble these days but what about the other nine commandments uh they they you know you can take god's name in vain as a christian o omg omg and people don't pat an eye uh you can do all kinds of sort of sorts of uh, 
cheating and dishonesty on a test and, and even among Christian circles it's sometimes winked at in comparison to I don't know a teenage boy has lustful thoughts in his heart or says something to a girl and it's like oh you you wicked terrible man and it is wickedness and it is terrible to um, say inappropriate things to a woman for a woman to be immodest that is wicked and terrible you know cover yourself up and and women need to um, but we got to keep things in perspective, right? Uh, God has made women to be, to desire, to be desired, right? They want to be wanted. Women want to be admired for their beauty. And in fact, they ought to be. And in fact, women should dress so as they can be admired for their beauty, but modestly, right? That's the, the key to all this. The key, the, the sin of women isn't that they want to be admired for their, their appearance. It's the way that they go about it. Um, for men, uh, it's not a, a sinful thing to be admired for their courage and their leadership or, or even their physical strength. It's just, how are you going about it? Are you gloating? Are you boastful? Uh, are you exercising your strength and leadership for merely selfish and wicked ends or for good ends? Uh, and, and probably more could be said and developed on that, I'm sure, from those who put more thought into it. But, um, you know, I want my daughters to be beautiful and my boys to be strong. And, and you know, I, I, there's no problem in saying that. I mean, do you want your boys to be beautiful and your girls to be strong? <laughs> uh, now, do I want my sons also to be handsome? Yes. Do I want my daughters also to be able to, you know, carry dishes in their arms and, and do things that require some level of physical exertion and not just be fainting, swooning women? Of course. You know, not some Victorian era, you know, thing where women are completely physically helpless. No, that's a distortion as well. Um, you know, I, I've heard some, at least one situation where I saw a man kind of implying that women shouldn't learn self-defense because that's the man's job. Well, it is the man's job, but again, what if the man's at work and the wife's at home? She should be able to defend herself in some way, shape, or form or have some kind of plan or, 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 or something. Um Anyway, uh, well, yeah, let's just keep going here because I'm going to run out of time if I don't. Um, Bavink says about in our fallen state, the temptations and dangers in the family that for sensual people, you know, sensual uh, sexual practices is very manifest, the sinfulness of all sorts of sexual deviancy. Um, and that absolutely destroys families. And as we know in our culture, pornography and just adultery and all of that is rampant. And, you know, when I say pornography, I'm looking at it in my mind, at least right now, from both ends. The men who consume it and the women who are in it, produce it. And, and not just the actual, you know, videos or magazines, you know, but how that whole framework does spill over into our minds and I'm certainly not been innocent of, of allowing that to happen and I, I, I think in this culture we're permeated we're a very sexually permeated culture and I do think that has to do in part with our decadence and our leisure and our ease not that primitive cultures aren't barbaric sexually that, that, that's not the point but it, it the, the channels in which it's flowing Literally, the channels, the TV channels, the, the internet, the, all that is, is, you know, you can't have these things without some degree of leisure. And so 
sinners are going to sin and often sexually with their free time and um, men and women are both culpable in that we both all need to repent individually and as a society and to encourage one another in that again because God made us to desire one another male and female but rightly expressed in the family male and female created them Adam and Eve one man one woman together forever until death to us part until Christ calls us home so Bodnik goes on to say, an, enti an entire army of evils besieges the life of the family, the infidelity of the husband, the stubbornness of the wife, the disobedience of the child, both the worship and the denigration of the woman, tyranny as well as slavery, the seduction and the hatred of men, both idolizing and killing children, sexual immorality, human trafficking, concubinage, bigamy, polygamy, polyandry, adult, um, adultery, divorce, incest, unnatural sins whereby men commit scandalous acts with men women with women men with boys women women with girls men and women and children with each other people with animals the stimulation of lust by impure thoughts words images plays literature art and clothing glorifying nudity and elevating even the passions of the flesh into the service of deity all of these and similar sins threaten the existence and undermine the well-being of the home and, and I think that is, you know, at one level, an admission on Bodnik's part that, hey, sexual sin is one of the chief sins in, in any culture, and it destroys the family. And if the family is the building block of society and sexual impulses gone awry, undermine it and destroy it, and they do, then whole civilizations and societies will crumble. They, the, the strength of a society is in its families, right? Not the individual even, but the family is now... It is certainly true that to have strong families, you have to have strong individuals. So you can't escape the individuals either, right? Yet the unity, the oneness, and the threeness of the Trinity, as um, Van Til would say, are equally ultimate, and that's absolutely true. And in, in a family, you know, what's more important? I guess you could say the collective or the individual. Well, both, <laughs> both have to work together in, in perfect harmony. Um, but to work well uh, as an individual. You have to see that you are more than an individual and you're called into a, a um, diversity. You're, you're, you're called as a man to leave and cleave. You're called to join yourself as one flesh to a woman and, and woman to a man. And so individualism is, is, is wrong. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. Like when you look at yourself as an individual, you also need to see in that a collective. And when you look at the collective, you need to see an individual. And if you lose sight of one or the other, things are thrown off balance and it creates all kinds of issues. And the two become one flesh, but they're still two persons. You don't turn into your wife or vice versa when you get married. But you should you, you don't think of, of yourselves as separate anymore either. <laughs> so there's that 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 bond and that covenant that God makes with us. I mean, it, it's all it's all together, it's all there. We're living together with God. We're united in Him, He in us, and we in Him. We're one spirit in the Lord. And yet, I'm not God, and God is not me. But yet, there's a bond there, and I should never think of myself apart from God and Christ and the church. And I should never really, and ultimately, for the most part, think of myself apart from, you know, my wife and kids till death do us part, right? Um, and, and so that's the bond that we have to have. And, and our culture is very big on individualism, and so you see a lot of people going their own way all over the place and just... You know, easy divorce and, and all, all sorts of things. So I, you know, I don't at all see the family, in general, being uh, an idol. I see almost the opposite. 
that the family is denigrated to uh, an unessential, uh, unnecessary, non-needful thing, right? That it's just something that is um, a perk, a benefit, a, an accessory, rather than essential to what it means to be human, to be man or woman. And, um, and when you do that, you also easily confuse what it means to be a man and masculine or woman and feminine. Because if you don't need each other anymore, when God says that you do, well, you've already started off on the wrong foot. And it's just going to get worse from there if you keep down that path. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, we've said enough about the evolutionist stuff. The next section is the preserving of marriage and family life among all peoples, despite its frequent and serious perversion. And, and this too, we can kind of hustle over here because we're getting very short on time. And Bhavik just says, throughout history, that family, nuclear family, or whatever you want to call it, husband and wife, one man, one woman, monogamy with children, and, and the fathers at the head of the household, that is always the rule and not the exception in human history. There are exceptions, but they are just that, exceptions and not the rule. And so that shows us, and Bavink even says it, nature bears this out. God's word bears it out, but nature too. And we can use both, and, and they work together. <laughs> um, whatever exceptions you can point to in history, an Amazonian woman tribe or whatever you want to look at, they're exceptional. They're not normative. And you would expect in a fallen world, at the very least, to see exceptions. At the very least. The fact that um, God's way is still the norm and not the exception, Bavink says, is the miracle in this fallen and wicked world. That even pagan rank sinners, whether they're of the upper echelons of society or the most primitive jungle people, recognize this intuitively. And, and, and societies end up weaving their way back to that. Now, why is that? Well, again, if this is the way God has made things and society is built on this, on the family, as he has made it, one man and one woman, once a society collectively, enough numbers drift away from that, society can, it literally cannot function and exist. It goes from a very weak and poor society to self-destruction and implosion and chaos again, because there's no more Harmonized complexity. It's just disjointed pieces mashing together. It's chaos. And so I would argue that throughout history, even among pagan tribes, it's always worked its way back to monogamy because that is the only thing that works. And so, yeah, even in this evolutionary model that Bobby's pointing out, there is a grain of truth to that, right? This is the way God has made it. That's the difference. It's not that chance has brought this about, but that God has built things this way, right? Evolutionists will say, well, this is just the way it shakes out. It just works out the best this way. But they have no way to explain why it works out best this way. And evolutionists probably wouldn't even say that today because they're not interested in monogamy. And maybe again, 50 years from now, when society totally collapses, they'll be back to that. But they still won't be looking at God revealed in Scripture who explains to us why he made things this way and why one man and one woman works this way. A lot of people don't know why, but they know that it does. And so throughout history, you get back to that point. And thank God for that, that, that the established natural order, he hasn't completely overthrown because it would lead, you know, basically to the destruction of the human race. 
Okay. And, and more destruction does occur the further you get away from God's family, the way he has designed it, and the further you get away from biblical masculinity and femininity, which is what's so scary about things going on right now in our nation and around the world. Um, yeah, he says right here, nature teaches this distinction and no science or philosophy is needed to acquaint oneself with this. Man and woman differ in physical structure and physical strength in psychological nature and physical strength. Thereby, they naturally enjoy different rights and are called to different duties. No single people was unfamiliar with this. This is common sense. So when people today are questioning it in the churches, they're, they're, I think is calling them stupid. No one has ever doubted this. <laughs> uh, by and large, right, on a wide scale. No single people, people group, was unfamiliar with this and did not organize the practical, practical matters of life accordingly. From the very beginning, there existed a kind of division of labor, both before marriage and within marriage. In the main, that division of labor came down to this, that the man took care of obtaining food from the animal world, while the woman took care of obtaining food from the plant world. The man tilled the land, the woman tended the livestock. The man performed his work by going away from home, typically. I think there's probably more exceptions to that than maybe what Bobbink says, but nevertheless. Occasionally, man went far away, and the woman performed her work in the home or in the neighborhood of her dwelling. Right? This is the general pattern because of the way that God has made us, even among pagans. And again, even if you look at, um, you know, I don't kill my own meat typically, right? I'm not a, a butcher, and I've, I've not taken that on in my life. But who typically are the butchers? It's still men, ordinarily, right? Because there's, I mean, butchering requires a physical strength and, 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 and guts and, 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 and toughness. Various circumstances, I'm reading Bavink again, could occasion change in these practices. Uh, and this is where the luxuriousness part comes in. For example, people lived in a fertile region in a warm climate, such that little work was needed to, to provide for the necessities of life. Then the man often surrendered to laziness and left all the work to the woman. Or also, if work was viewed as something despicable, as was the case among many people groups, and only hunting and capturing were deemed worthy for a man, then the woman came to occupy a position of oppression and was denigrated to a means of pleasure, to a slave, and to merchandise. But thereby it could also happen that the woman at home achieved a great degree of independence and freedom, acquiring a capacity in achieving rights that strengthened her position with respect to the man who was living away from home and was hardly involved with his family. And again, just for context, when you do have more freedoms and ease in Zion, if you will, more ease in, in the land that God has given us here on earth, not yet glory, not yet Zion, but the land that God has given us, um, it's a double-edged sword. But it also doesn't mean that, that um, women with greater freedom can, can expand in keeping with their femininity into certain things that before they may not have expanded into in the same for men, but it, but it can't violate nature. It can't violate the way God has made us, male and female. Um, all right, let's keep going. In the formal sense, however, a feminocracy never existed anywhere. Naturally, the woman never lacked power and influence over her children, her husband, and her entire family. And that should be true still, always, right? They, the wife has influence. She's not the head, but she's, she certainly has influence. Here and there, she was even called to fill important and dignified posts so that from time to time, queens have governed among various nations. 
but this is exceptional and something entirely different than a formal feminocracy. Always and everywhere, the man has been the head of the family. Uh, he says, monogamy among the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, and the Romans was true in, in antiquity. So for those who would say, well, that's, a, that's never true, that's just inaccurate, according to Bob Inc. Um, Numerous histories from the life of the nation speak to us of intimate love between husband and wife, between parents and children. Literature and art bring to our view various scenes of masculine fidelity, feminine devotion, and filial dependence. Right? Even pagan cultures bears this out. I mean, I've taught some of the great works, the great books throughout history, and there's a sense of what women are to be and men are to be. Sometimes it gets perverted and twisted, but oftentimes in the most basic ways... That the men are the warriors and the women are the homemakers that's still there and it's good so don't be dumber than the pagans <laughs> by violating all this and trying to be a warrior woman or trying to be a um an effeminate man a stay-at-home dad or whatever that just you know does the dishes and expects the wife to make all the decisions and fix the you know roof and and cut all the wood and all that stuff all right, wrapping up here, last paragraph. The legislation, Bavink says, for example, of Hammurabi, the Code of Hammurabi, one of the books that I actually got to teach through, known for several years now, I think it came out in the 19-teens and Bavink's writing in 1920, is comparable at several points to that of Moses. It contains various stipulations that protected the married woman in relation to her husband, especially in case of divorce. After the fall, God did not abandon humanity. Within the heart of husband and wife, of parents and children, he preserved the natural love that he had planted in that heart and there, thereby opened a fountain of pure happiness and inestimable, inestimable blessing for earthly life. God has maintained that. He has preserved that. It is not gone. And that is a great blessing. That's also why, one of the reasons why in Romans 1, when it talks about what we would call homosexuality today, vile passions, men and women, or men with men, women with women doing that, which is shameful and acting like they can live together like that, that is a sin against nature. It's unnatural. Nature is a real thing, even in this fallen world. The natural order is not overturned, but in God's common goodness and grace is continued and preserved. And in God's common goodness and grace, generally, it's preserved in the understanding and mind of the unbeliever as well, right? And so I, maybe I'm tipping my hand a little bit about my going back to the apologetic stuff. But, I, you know, you can go to the unbeliever and talk about nature, I think. And you can go there and point to that order that he does really know. And, and some presuppositionalists will certainly overall concur with that statement as well. You know, so we can look at that and appeal to that. And God has preserved a common sense at some level in the unbeliever. And, and they act in accordance with that. We're not so depraved that every single thing we do is maximally sinful for the unbeliever. The unbeliever still can do some lateral to fellow man good things, but it's not coming from a heart of faith. It's not done to the glory of God. So it's still ultimately at the deepest and most fundamental level sinful. But just wrapping up in this last minute here, uh, as we launch into the next chapter, it's good to know that God has preserved this natural order so society can continue, so that as Christians are redeemed in Christ, the call again to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, can continue and, and occur and flourish and grow. And that's what the next chapter is going to be, the family in Israel. 
And it's going to talk about that law and custom among Israel with regard to marriage, patriarchy, paternal authority, women, and children. And that was already seen there in seed form in Israel. And now all the more through Christ, that doesn't diminish marriage, but it enhances it, allows us to glorify God all the more in our marriages. Well, I hope you'll talk with me, look with me as we look at that next time. And uh, we got 10 seconds here, so I hope you enjoyed this. And uh, until next time, uh, God bless.